Morning. Um, before I begin my sermon this morning, I want to take just a minute uh, to pray. I want to ask you to join or join me to pray, um, not for this sermon, uh, the topic of this sermon, but for um, this growing tragedy in uh, this earthquake uh, situation. Um, just been thinking about it. Uh, it, the scale is, is, is unbelievable. I know a lot of tragedies, they come one after the other. But just join me as we take just a, a, a few seconds to pray for God's work in this place uh, in Turkey, northern Syria. Join me as we pray. My God and Father, I come to you uh, this morning. And Lord, I come with a heavy heart. Uh, I don't know uh, as a pastor, just one person, one church, what we how we even respond to situations uh, like this uh, earthquake and in the tragedy that has happened to this country. Uh, we call it today Turkey, but we know, Lord, it was the place um, where the church was born. Many of these letters uh, that we read in the New Testament, the travels of the apostles, were in, uh, in this very geography 2,000 years ago. A lot has happened uh, since then, Lord. And today, um, they've experienced something um, that is really uh, beyond um, belief sometimes. Uh, I suppose in our context, it would be, uh, you know, 10 9-11s uh, plus when we think of the death that has happened. Uh, many uh, children, families, people from all walks of life. So, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know if money is what they need even, Lord. They we, we pray for your grace, we pray for your power, we pray for the, the, the renewal, the revival of the churches that uh, once dotted this geography, that you would wake up uh, the body and you would bring hope and healing. Yes, um, physical help, uh, Lord, but also spiritual renewal uh, in this place. Syria as well, that has been such a, 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 a tragic, uh, so it's gone on so long we've forgotten it, Lord the tragedy 10 years in the making. So we just pray, Lord, uh, do what we can't do and, and um, activate your church where you can and, and call us to prayer, Lord, and to do whatever we can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know what we can do there, but let me say this. As a church, we support um, World Relief Western uh, New York one of our missionary partners, which works with refugees, but the Mothership World Relief, a great organization, is, is uh, on the ground. If you want to support them, you can go to worldrelief.org. Right on the front page, there's opportunities to support what's going on on the ground in those countries. Now, this morning, we are going to conclude this short series that I began, still in the book of 1 Corinthians, but the last three weeks, called Rights and Freedoms, by looking at the greatest threat, I would say, the greatest threat to our freedom in the gospel, we're talking about rights and freedoms, the greatest threat I would suggest to you for our freedom, my freedom, to be expressed in the gospel as a Christian is idolatry, okay? The greatest threat to my freedom, to your freedom, according to the word of God, is idolatry. You know, it's an old word. Some of us perhaps don't even know what the word means. Some of us do. It's a greatly misunderstood concept, but I would suggest to you in the few minutes that I have that this idea of idolatry is a very widespread problem, not only in our culture, 
but also in the church of Jesus Christ, including this one. Now, for Christians, what does it mean? Let me, let me focus on it for Christians. I think I'm at least largely talking to Christians this morning, or that's my point of view. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? This, this old idea, it's all throughout the scriptures, by the way, many of you know that. But what does it actually mean? It simply means this. Anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your imagination more than God. Anything that you would seek to give you what only God can give you. Okay? Now we're going to end this brief time in some prayer. So let me just, let me give it to you on the front end. Here's the question. Am I, Rob Catalani, an idolater in some way in my life? Are you an idolater in some way in your life? What does it mean? This is the question. What is idolatry in my life and in your life today? Anything that is more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your imagination, takes your time, your energies and your cycles more than God. Anything that you seek, person, place, or thing, to give you what only God can give you. This is idolatry. That's what I want you to think about today. My, I remember a conversation, I don't know why I thought of it this week, when I was a teenager with my mother. It's a long time ago. And I, I remember saying to her, Mom, you know, as, as kids often, you know, say crazy things to their parents. And I said, Mom, I want to ask you a question. Was life harder in your day or in my day? Just interested to know. Is life harder to be, a, in my case, a 16-year-old, is life harder in your day or in my day? And she said to me the opposite of what I thought she would say. She said, your day. I think it's harder today. And I remember thinking, I was, stu- I, w- I was stumped. I thought for sure she was going to say, oh, honey, you have no idea, you know, and we had to go get the milk, and we had to do this, and we had to do that. And, and you know, I thought so much easier in our day. I'm thinking to myself, 16-year-old kid, you know, we have, you know, all the modern conveniences, modern medicine, you know, whatever. I think cell phones were around. I don't know what the point is. I thought she is going to say it's much harder in my day. And she said, your day. And I said, really, why do you say that? And I was thinking of all these conveniences. And she said the amount of decisions and the choices that kids your age have to make, we never had to make those kinds of things. I can't imagine what it's like to be a teenager, uh, what it's like for you. There are forces in our culture actively seeking to take the place that belongs to God in your life and in your heart. If you have a biblical worldview, I don't need to convince you of that. We are in a battle for our lives, okay? I'm talking about our hearts, our minds. I'm not talking about going to hell when you die. That may be true for some of us in that battle. But I'm talking about a battle for your hearts and your minds. You are in a battle. I am in a battle. I'm not sure many of us know it. I'm not sure many of us know it. What I want to challenge us to do in the few minutes we have is this. I want you to identify that thing, that sin, that person, that preoccupation, that fear, right? That's taken place of God in your life, back to idolatry, or it's seeking to take the place of God in your life. That's temptation. What is idolatry? It's anything more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your imagination more than God. It's anything that you seek 
to do for you what only God can do for you. Okay? So I want you to just take a few minutes as we sit here in this service, as I say a few words from the Word of God, and ask you to identify that thing, that sin, that person, that preoccupation, that fear, that has either already taken the place of God in your life, okay, you're in church today, but it's already taken that place of God, or it's it's nipping at your heels. And I'm going to encourage you, challenge you to come forward this morning to pray, to confess, to seek God's help and his deliverance. Amen? Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, sermon called Modern Idols. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just where we left off last Sunday, follow along as I read these words. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, a pastor writing to this congregation, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall modern idols. First thing this passage says to us is idolatry, as I just described it, begins by presumption with God, okay? Or presumption in your relationship with God. Where does it begin, right? That's what this passage tells us. This whole thing is, is a warning, right? These things happen to them. These are written down as warnings for us. This is a warning passage, Okay, And the warning, the vehicle of that warning, we just read it, verses 1 through 11, is the exodus and the aftermath. There's three or four different passages referenced here, if you do your um, homework here. right? It's, it's the exodus and the aftermath. But rather than try to take, make the text relevant, bring it into their day, pastors use this sometimes, Right? Paul's going to try to do something different. It's very profound. Instead of bringing the text into their day, he wants to take them into the story. Right? He wants to bring them into this story, into this account, that it might affect their decisions in the present. Right? That's what he wants to do. And it's a profound insight here. And it's very helpful when you think about what does it mean to read the Bible? Okay? He's trying to show us something about what the Word of God can do and should do in your life. These are not simply isolated historical accounts, right? These references. There's four or five of them from the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, if you 
read carefully your footnotes in your Bible. But they're not just isolated historical accounts, but they're texts that contain the eternal purposes of God, a God who knows the end from the beginning, and he's bringing up these texts so that they will speak directly to your life and speak directly to my life. It's a profound insight as you think about the word of God. What he's trying to say is, listen, this is your story. You ought to read the Bible, right? The book of Psalms, the book of Genesis, the book, the Gospels, and it ought to wake you up and say, this is for you. Paul's saying, listen, this is your story, and you better take action right now. This is a warning, okay? God is bringing this word from the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers to them as I'm trying to bring it here to you. Israel Here's the point of the first few verses. Had experienced God's favor and sustaining power. This is what he, he said, listen, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, talking to Christians. Let me give you a history lesson. Their Bible was the Old Testament. Let me give it to you in just one or two verses. He's saying the entire nation of Israel, the word all is used four times. They were all under the cloud, if you know the Exodus story, right, that followed them through the, uh, through the um, uh, wilderness. They all passed through the sea. He's talking about the, the great exodus through the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses. He's kind of using that term. You know, it's a modern term, a New Testament term. And they walked through the Red Sea. In other words, as they went through the Red Sea, God delivered them, and they were identifying with their leader. Okay, they were baptized into the Red Sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink, whether he's talking about the manna from heaven or the word of God that was given right after the Exodus when the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments and the covenant were given. He's saying, listen, they all had a great start. They all know Jesus as their Savior. They all had the word of God. They had the spirit of God. They had the spiritual food. But guess what? It didn't end well for them. Nevertheless, verse 5, God was not pleased, this is an understatement, with most of them. And their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Why do I say an understatement? If you read the book of Exodus, it says that when they came out of Egypt, 600,000 foot soldiers, men, some people say, you know, add women and children, you're at 2 million. Of all the adults that came out, with baptized into the, through the sea with Moses, had the spiritual food. They saw the ten plagues. The, Egypt's, the Egyptians gave them their gold and their silver. It was a triumph of all those people. You know how many people made it into the land of promise? Two. Kathy said two, right? Joshua and Caleb. Isn't that amazing? Two people are the only two people that made it into the... Now, what does this mean? Let me get real quick. Does this mean all these people died and went to hell? Listen, that's not even a mature concept in the Old Testament. I'm not talking about... That's not the point. Even when he says, this is your story, congregation, brothers and sisters, don't be ignorant of the fact he's not... Once you're saved, you can't become unsaved. The warning here is not about dying and going to hell. That's not this, what's going on here. He's saying, listen, what was the great cost of all of those people, is they never realized the purpose that God had intended for their life. God had a promise for their life. That's why they call it the land of promise. And it was never realized. That's the point of that story. 
And that's why when he says the word, you know, baptized into Moses, spiritual food, I'm sure it's a nod, commentators would say, to the two ordinances of the church. He's saying, listen, this is your story. No, no one ever used the word baptism when the people went through, but that's really kind of what it was. And they didn't have the Lord's table in the same way that we did. But what he's trying to say is, listen, right? They had the equivalent of baptism. They had the equivalent of the Lord's table. They had the equivalent of the law that came down, the spiritual food. But they didn't take it seriously. Something got in between them and God. Something absorbed their heart more than God. Something became more important to them than God. They began to seek to get from something. They could only get something from God. And it ruined and poisoned their life. And they never achieved what God wanted them to achieve. That's what he's talking about. There's a, there's a parable. Idolatry begins with presumption. Presumption. Presumption is one of the things that has poisoned the lives of many, many Christians and people of faith for thousands of years. Jesus tells this parable. He says he tells this parable to some who are confident of their own righteousness. At least Luke chapter 18. It's a very, very simple story. In to church comes this Pharisee, religious leader, and a tax collector, the scum of the earth in the Jewish uh, uh, economy. And the, and the Pharisee comes in. It's a parable. He's making a point. He says, oh, I, God, I'm so thankful. I'm not like other people. Right? I don't do X. I don't do Y. I don't commit adultery. I don't rob temples. I don't do the, I'm, I'm not like this guy who's fleecing his own people and sitting in the back of the church. I tithe. Thank you. And it says, Jesus says, then in walks the tax collector who sits in the back row, okay? And he says, does not even lift up his head, the collaborator. And all he says is, beats his breast, says, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And you know what Jesus said? This guy went home justified. Why? Because he understood the gospel. Do you? What is the gospel? It's sheer grace. Guys, let me tell you something. I hope you know this. God does not owe you anything. He doesn't owe you a good family. He doesn't owe you a cancer-free life. He doesn't owe you a happy life. He doesn't owe you a good education. He doesn't owe you anything. But he gives to you freely. It's sheer grace. And as soon as anything else becomes an expectation, as soon as anything else becomes a right, as soon as anything else becomes this is what I deserve, it's the beginning of the end. Right? It's the beginning of the end. Idolatry begins with presumption with God. Second, idolatry is motivated by restlessness with God. Now these things occurred as examples to keeping us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things, I would encourage you to do your homework. There's four, I think, references here, all from Exodus and Numbers, right? From the Exodus and from the wilderness wanderings. They share a common theme. But I want you to, do, I encourage you to look them up. I think it's Exodus 32, Numbers 21, Numbers 25, I think Exodus 17. They're all here just in this little paragraph. They share a common theme. You know what the common theme is? Impatience with God and his timing and ingratitude for the gifts of God. That's what he's talking about. 
impatience with God and his timing? God, when are you going to do it? Do it now. And ingratitude. Let me just read. Both of these verses I'm reading to you, just, I'm going to, not a little comment, are the verses connected to the ones quoted here. The first one is from Exodus 32. He quotes verse 4. I'm going to quote verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron. Who are the people? The ones that were baptized through the Red Sea with Moses, the ones who received all the spiritual food, the ones that received the deliverance from Egypt. They gathered around Moses and said, or excuse me, Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. You know how long Moses was up there on the mountain? 40 days. And in 40 days, they got anxious, they got fearful, they got self-focused, and they said, make us another God. Okay? Make us another God. Numbers 21. Just a little bit before this, historically. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. This is, this is the first part of the quote that he finishes in verse 9. They traveled around Hor around the, the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people, the people who were under the cloud that passed through the sea, that were all baptized Moses and all had the same spiritual food, the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, overstatement. There is no water, overstatement. And we detest this miserable food. What are they talking about? Well, this sweet bread that fell from the sky every day. Impatience leads to murmuring, complaining. Leads to disobedience, ultimately leads to idolatry. Make me another God. I need something that's going to be more important to me than God, that absorbs my imagination more than God. I'm going to, that I'm going to seek to get from which only God can give you. That's idolatry. And when that happens, it's the beginning of the end. It's not going to, it doesn't mean you're going to die and go to hell. It means you're never going to experience the promise that God has for you. You're never going to experience the life that God has intended for you. Okay? God, isn't, God doesn't have a small ego. God isn't some sort of insecure kind of uh, a deity. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, make me the center of your life, he's doing that for your benefit, not for his. Because that's the only way your life's ever going to make sense. It's the only way my life is ever going to make sense. Listen, our hearts are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate in our daily lives. That's why it's so important to spend time with God, to spend time with others, our habits of carnival community, to know and use your gifts and to share your faith. Listen, these habits are the building blocks of your life, right? Our hearts are being shaped and molded every single day. What are you doing to shape and mold yours? Why is it important? Because the culture has a shaping system Two, right? That's actively seeking to get you to question your faith, to cast doubt on God's word. Where does sin begin? Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say? It's the oldest 
trick in the book. Did God really say we ought to look to the needs of others and not to ourselves? Did God really say that money and love of money is the root of all evil? Did God really say that marriage is between a man and a woman for life? Did God really say you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength, and your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself? Did God really say that? Listen, all of those things and more are being challenged every single day. Okay? Every single day. What are the modern idols, Pastor? Well, guys, I think uh, you know, it would take a, a, a year of Sundays to, to list them. But let me just say a few. Certainly sex is one. Now, sexual immorality, that's been going on forever. Right? This is, it was going on in the church 2,000 years ago. He's quoting the book of Exodus, which was 1,000 years before that. So sexual immorality, sexual dysfunction has been going on in the culture and in the church for thousands of years. That's not new. Okay? Let me tell you what is new. Maybe 20 years new. Now sex has become an idol in our culture. Human sexuality has become an idol. How, How sex is expressed has become an idol, right? Who are you? I'm, 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 I'm straight, I'm gay, I'm trans, I'm, I'm, I'm bi, okay? This has become an idol in our culture today. It's become a dominant way of identity. That's not always been true. And it's become an idol in our culture because it's become an idol in our culture. It's even splitting people in the church because we're being formed by the culture instead of being formed by the church. That's a modern idol, guys. You're either going to address it or you're not going to address it. How about money? That's an easy one. Easier one. You know, I was reading this the other day in my Luke chapter 3. And John the Baptist, they say, what should we do? This great call of repentance. And he says this. I don't think anyone has this on the refrigerator. Luke 2.11. He that has two shirts, give it to the one who has none. And the same with food. Okay? Now, why do we not champion that? And that's not a, he's not talking about a government program. He's not saying, you know, let's, let's change the, the, the way we run our system. Let's buy a new system, you know. He's talking about individuals. He that's got two shirts, give, it to, give one to someone who doesn't have one. Do you do that? Think about your life. Do I do that? If you don't, it's because money's become an idol. And it's not even, you don't have to be ashamed, you don't have to be ashamed about it in our culture. It's so prompt. How about, boy, I'm going to get myself in trouble. How about politics? Do I care about this crazy uh, 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 politics going on? Do, do I, do I, does my heart grieve for, for people who are raising children in this society? Does my heart break for all of the wacky and, and unbelievably stupid things that are going on in the name of, of politics? Yes, they do. And I'm going to do my best to, 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 to exercise my right while I have it. But for some of it, it's become an idol. It's become more important to you than God. It's absorbed your imagination more than God. And you're looking for to, to seek to Pollux to give you what only God can give you. It's an idol. You need to repent. Okay? How about race? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Is racism a problem in this culture? Absolutely. Has racism been a problem in this culture for, for 250 years? Yes. Has it been a problem in, human, in, in the human? Uh, uh, absolutely, it's a problem. Jesus, help us get better at it. We've got a long way to go. But it's become an idol in this culture. 
For some of us, it's become more important to us than God. It's become, it's absorbed our imagination more than God. We're looking to seek to get from it what only God can give us. That's an idol you need to repent. It's a modern idol. Dick Keyes, great writer, pastor from London, thinker, said these words in a book recently. A careful reading of the Old Testament, Old and New Testament, shows that idolatry is nothing like the crude, simplistic picture that springs to mind of an idol sculpture in some distant country. As the main category to describe unbelief, okay, the idea is highly sophisticated, drawing together the complexities of motivation, one's social environment, and the unseen world. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. What is it, Rob? It's anything that's more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your imagination more than God. It's anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. And when you think about it that way, we got a lot of work to do. Okay? We got a lot of work to do. To get to the idols of your heart. How do you get there, Rob? You need to step back and consider the ways your desires shape your life. Let me ask you a few questions. We're almost done. What drives you to work the way that you do? Some of us. What drives you to drink the way that you drink? Eat the way that you eat or not eat? the way that you don't eat? What do you fantasize about? That's how you get to the idols of your heart. Do you say to yourself, if I only had this, if I were only like that? Okay? What is that desire pointing at? If it's something other than God, you need to acknowledge it, you need to confess it, and you need to surrender your life. You say, well, gee, I did that in, in, when I was in high school. I did that three years ago. Let me tell you something. Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, if you know the story, the great the Reformation, right? It's a big correction, huge correction, course correction in the church. He takes this long document, right? The 95 Theses, which is a fancy word of saying statements. And he nails it to this beautiful church in Wittenberg. You know what the first one was? That's all you need is the first one. This is, this is the Reformation for dummies. All you need is one. It said this, repentance is a way of life. That's the first one. Repentance is a way of life. Okay? You, it's every single day. The idols of your heart. Listen, the, 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 Netflix is streaming. That's a metaphor for life. It's streaming into your life every single day that are trying to challenge you to, to not believe what, what, what you believe, to say, did God really say? Okay? You need to decide what you believe and you need, I need, to repent. Okay? Last thing, idolatry is defeated by the faithfulness of God. Idolatry is defeated by the faithfulness of God. Listen to these last two verses. No temptation... has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Take a breath. It looks, it's in different clothes. It's wrapped in technology, but it's nothing new. As God, excuse me, um, that is common to mankind, and God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, 
he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Well, Rob, I don't have a little statue on my mantle. Flee from idolatry. It's anything that's become more important to you than God. It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. It's anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. So we're going to end our time with some prayer. I'm gonna, we have some elders. If you come forward right now to the base of this platform. Guys, we've, we've saved a few minutes. We're going to take some time to pray. Let me say this, as I just got done saying. The circumstances that tempt us to sin are not qualitatively any different from what people have struggled with in every single era. There's always a way out of having sin blow up your life, but it, it begins with a humble recognition to come. God has made a way out. You have to come. So that's what I'm challenging you to do here in this room, in this moment. For some of us, these elders, it's an opportunity to come, really, to confess sin. See, some of you have gone beyond temptation. You're into sin. It's okay. You're not the first. You won't be the last. What is that sin? I don't know. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's infidelity. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a debilitating fear. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's an uncontrollable lust. But see... Dissatisfaction, restlessness, leads to grumbling, leads to complaining, leads to idolatry. Looking for something else to give you what only God can give you. You need to confess it, right? Confess your sins one to another, and God will heal you, James chapter 5. For some of us, it's not a, you're not trapped in sin, but you're under great temptation, right? You're under great temptation. And what you need is God's strength. You need God's power. You need, God says, listen, come. You know what's so beautiful about this last passage? God is faithful. Let me tell you something. He's the only person in your life that's capable of not failing you. Your career will fail you. Your health will fail you. The people you love the most will fail you. Listen, you'll fail yourself. If our hearts condemn us, John, 1 John 3, 20, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. You will fail yourself. But God is faithful. God is faithful. He's the only one that won't fail you. And he loves you. And it's all sheer grace. We're going to take just some, some minutes. And I want to challenge you. Don't wait. Come down here. All you need to say is your name. Come to Matthew, Sherrill, whoever it is. All I want to do is tell you my name. Now, if you want to confess the sin, say it. Infidelity. Uh, whatever it is, just say the if you want to. Some of you may want to just come and just kneel down here and pray. Not to talk to anybody, but don't let this moment pass you by. No temptation has overcome any of us that is, isn't common to people from all generations. But God has made a way out. All right? God has made a way out. Come and receive um, grace and healing this morning. Amen? Let's pray.